All right, so let's get into George W. Bush's second term. So despite the chaos in Iraq, in 2004, President Bush narrowly defeated his Democratic opponent, Senator John Kerry of Massachusetts. His victory gave Republicans control over all three branches of government. The moment seemed opportune to promote long-sought conservative goals. Bush began with a politically risky campaign to privatize Social Security. He argued that the federal retirement system faced insolvency if steps were not taken to fix it before a flood of baby booners began to retire. But his proposal to create individual retirement accounts met stiff opposition, even from some in his own party. Critics worried that individuals risk losing their nest eggs if they chose unwisely, whereas the existing system guaranteed a return, even if it was less spectacular. The president exerted the most significant impact on conservative values by appointing two justices to the Supreme Court, John Roberts and Samuel Alito. In 2007, the court issued a number of decisions demonstrating that the court indeed had moved to the right. By a 5-4 to four majority, it weakened campaign finance laws that set limits on how much individuals or parties could contribute, limited free speech on the part of students in schools, and protected religious groups offering social programs financed by public funds. Bush's early second-term defeat on Social Security proved to be no more than a mild headwind to his popularity compared to the gale from Hurricane Katrina. That storm slammed the Gulf Coast on sept- in September 2005, crippling New Orleans levees and inundating the city. Most well-to-do citizens escaped before the storm, but no one had made adequate provision to evacuate the elderly, disabled, and poor, most of whom were African American. For days, desperate survivors hung to rooftops, well over a thousand died, while tens of thousands huddled in the damaged Superdome Marina. The president at first seemed disengaged from the crisis, uh, nor was his administration prepared to act decisively. Headed by an incompetent political appointment, the FEMA suffered from staff and budget, cust- budget cuts. Gulf Coast residents waited helplessly and with growing anger for federal relief to arrive. Katrina reminded Americans that there are some problems that only an effective government can address. Halfway across the globe in Iraq, Sectarian violence between Shia and Sunni Muslims threatened to erupt in a full-scale civil war. As critics charged that the administration lacked a coherent exit strategy for the war, in 2007, Bush changed course. He ordered more troops to Iraq, a surge, rather than a withdrawal. The surge temporarily reduced violence, but political stability remained elusive, while the Taliban in Afghanistan posed a growing threat. Suddenly, the impregnable Republican stranglehold on Washington seemed to slip. Voters voiced their displeasure in the 2006 congressional elections, not only with the handling of the war and the administration's stumbles dealing with Katrina, but also with a series of financial and sexual scandals that tarred Republicans. Democrats took control of both the House and the Senate in the 2006 midterm elections. So, as President Bush's popularity plummeted, the Democrats sensed even greater possibilities in 2008, and then the economy went into freefall. Over the previous decade, banks, investment firms, and hedge funds have poured trillions of dollars into unregulated mortgage-backed securities. Lenders routinely granted loans to prospective homeowners who possessed virtually no assets and little capacity to make monthly payments. One fruit picker in California received a $750,000 mortgage, even though he earned just $14,000 a year. Financial markets bundled such subprime mortgages with other forms of debt, creating financial instruments that were so complicated, few bankers recognized their underlying risks. As the housing market contracted, many of these securities proved worse than ruthless. Worthless, sorry. On September 15, 2008, 
the huge Lehman Brothers investment bank suddenly filed for bankruptcy. The following day, the Federal Reserve authorized $85 billion in loans to keep insurance giant AIG, the American International Group, afloat. Nine days later, the Office of Thrift Supervision closed Washington Mutual Bank, the nation's largest savings and loan association. Brighton banks refused to make loans even to financially sound corporations. The nation faced its worst economic disaster since the Great Depression. The Bush administration, which normally championed the free market, hastily extended massive government loans to save the banking system. The Troubled Asset Relief Program, TARP, allowed the Treasury Department to purchase or insure up to $700 billion of mortgages and securities, toxic assets with no evident value, in order to stabilize financial markets. Later, the administration modified the program to invest money directly into trouble banks. Critics complained that while desperate homeowners faced foreclosure, the government bailed out those who had created the problem in the first place. The 2008 election played out against this global financial crisis. For the Democrats, Hillary Clinton entered the presidential race as the odds-on favorite, with high name recognition and long experience in government. However, Barack Obama, a junior senator from Illinois, possessed the advantages of relative youth. He was 47 when he ran, as well as the hard-nosed skills of a former community organizer and an ability to inspire when he spoke. Even more striking, Obama was an African-American, born in Hawaii to a white mother and a Kenyan father. Obama overcame Clinton in his strongly contested primary season and then, with his running mate, Senator Joe Biden of Delaware, went on to defeat the Republican nominee, Senator John McCain of Arizona and McCain's vice presidential running mate, Governor Sarah Palin of Alaska. 45 years after Martin Luther King Jr. shared his dreams of freedom on the Washington Mall, the United States had elected the first African-American as its president. Despite his optimistic call for hope and change, Barack Obama inherited serious economic and foreign policy crises. The financial system remained in freefall, millions lost jobs, million, many others faced eviction from their homes, and major corporate icons such as General Motors and Chrysler stood on the brink of bankruptcy. Abroad, no timetable existed to bring American troops back from Iraq. Worse yet, pressure mounted to redeploy troops to nearby Afghanistan where Taliban insurgents threatened the governments in Kabul and neighboring Pakistan. President Obama moved quickly in February 2009 to propose measures designed to stimulate the collapsing economy, tax cuts, expanded unemployment benefits, and social welfare provisions, as well as spending on education, health care, and infrastructure. The stimulus package carried a $787 billion price tag. Republicans dismissed it as ineffective federal spending that burdened the national debt. None would vote for it in the House and only three in the Senate. Liberals warned that more than a trillion in spending might be needed to fully revive the economy. So let's get into Obama's first year here, his first term. So similar partisanship complicated Obama's pledge to reform the nation's bloated health care system. Americans paid far more for medical care than any other nation, but were no healthier. Over 40 million people had no health insurance, and rising unemployment threatened millions more with loss of coverage. Many Republicans had supported the idea of reform. Mitt Romney had established a comprehensive plan similar to Obama's when he was governor of Massachusetts, but congressional Republicans staunchly opposed any deal. After a year of bitter negotiation, the Democrats passed the Affordable Care Act, the ACA, in March 2010. Only one Republican member of Congress voted for this measure. Among the program's many initiatives, provisions extended Medicaid to some 16 million relatively poor people, guaranteed coverage for children, and prevented insurers from denying coverage because of pre-existing conditions. 
The administration, however, so badly underestimated the difficulty of putting the new program into effect that its full rollout in 2013 began with many stumbles. Yet, by 2017, it had extended care to over 20 million who had been uninsured. With the president's support, Congress also passed the Dodd-Frank Act, which many observers considered the toughest financial reform since the aftermath of the Great Depression. Among other provisions, the law tightened bank requirements and established a consumer protection agency to reduce credit card abuses. The milestones in health care and financial reform did not translate into electoral success for either the president or the Democrats. On many issues, Obama followed a pragmatic middle course that disappointed both those to his left and his right. But Republicans obstructed many of his compromise measures. Senate Republicans threatened to filibuster the Democratic majority 256 times between 2007 and 2010, compared with 130 filibuster threats from the Democrats during the Republican-controlled Congress between 2003 and 2007. In foreign affairs, the president ended the American combat role in Iraq. Soon after, a terrorist group called ISIS threatened to destabilize not only Iraq, but also Syria and Afghanistan. Thus, Obama poured an additional 30,000 troops into Afghanistan to fight Taliban insurgents. With little show, little to show for the effort. As the midterm elections of 2010 approached, disgruntled conservatives and independents formed a loosely coordinated alliance dubbed the Tea Party. Like the original demonstrators in Boston in 1773, the modern-day Tea Party protested high taxes. Its followers wanted less government in their lives, not more, although many also opposed any reduction in Social Security benefits. The election gave Republicans a decisive majority in the House and significant gains in the Senate. Although the economy recovered only slowly, the president gained a major victory in the war on terrorism. He made effective use of unmanned drones and pushed his intelligence team to locate Osama bin Laden. In the spring of 2011, after the CIA tracked bin Laden to a house in Pakistan, Obama dispatched Navy SEALs on a daring nighttime mission. The SEALs found and killed the Al-Qaeda leader, escaping with his body as well as a cache of valuable intelligence. Even so, domestic issues framed the election of 2012. Republican Mitt Romney, the first Mormon to be nominated for president, promised to bring business skills to bear on the presidency. But in selecting Romney, the GOP failed to address the changing profile of American voters. Latino and Asian Americans overwhelmingly favored Obama, since Romney has spoken out against immigration reform. Women voters, especially younger single women, rejected conservatives' anti-abortion stance and their opposition to contraception coverage as part of health care reform. The president was re-elected by a comfortable margin, thanks in part to a strong get-out-the-vote campaign coordinated through a sophisticated computer network. All right, so every president must make choices. Short-term crises such as the financial collapse of 2008 demanded immediate attention. Healthcare and financial reforms could be called medium-term issues, and their success remained to be measured as they were put into effect. But long-term problems began crowding the president's second term. They centered on economic inequality and global warming. On the surface, economic affairs seemed promising. Corporate profits were strong, the stock market rebounded, the number of home foreclosures and evictions declined, the job market continued its slow improvement, yet the gap between the richest and poorest Americans continued to widen. By 2012, the CEOs of the 350 largest corporations earned over $14 million a year on average, 273 times more than the average worker. The average income of America's 400 wealthiest families exceeded $200 million a year. The traditional response to such numbers was to say that in a good economy, a rising tide lifts all boats. But as one group of economists noted, when a handful of yachts become ocean liners while the rest remain lowly canoes, something is seriously amiss. 
In his second inaugural address, Barack Obama acknowledged that our country cannot succeed when a shrinking few do very well and a growing many barely make it. Inequality inspired protesters to form Occupy Wall Street, a movement that took over a portion of New York's financial district for over two months. They proclaimed themselves representatives of the 99% of Americans with the lowest incomes. The movement spread to cities around the country but never set a clear agenda or an effective strategy for political action. In Congress, as the 10-year Bush tax cuts were about to expire, Democrats succeeded in slightly raising the rates on incomes of over $250,000 a year. But the longer-term issue of inequality was never squarely addressed during Obama's second term. Global warming, however, seemed to pose the greatest threat over the long term for both the United States and the world. Conservatives and industry leaders were frequently skeptical of the scientific evidence that the Earth's warming was man-made or even a threat. Texas Republican Congressman Joe Barton insisted he would not be one of the sycophants that say climate change is the biggest problem facing the world and we need to do all these draconian things that cost jobs. But in 2016, Obama used his executive authority to commit the U.S. to the Paris Agreement, a climate accord agreed to by 72 nations, including China and India. The agreement called signers to limit their emission of greenhouse gases enough to keep global temperatures from rising more than 2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial averages. Most climate scientists consider that to be a minimal goal. The debate over energy and the environment was further unsettled by success in obtaining natural gas and oil through hydraulic fracturing. The process, also known as fracking, creates high pressure to crack shale deposits from which gas or oil flows into the wells. Supporters of the technique hailed it as almost a magic bullet that would spark economic growth. It would also lower carbon emissions from coal-burning plants, create high-wage jobs, and add tax revenues. On the other hand, the liquid pumped into the wells contained many toxic pollutants that threatened aquifers and groundwater. The wells often leaked methane, an especially potent greenhouse gas. The claims for fracking were heady, but similar enthusiasm has been expressed over the years for scientific innovations such as plastics, tetraethyl lead gasoline, ammoniated fertilizers, DDT, and nuclear power. Each of these technological breakthroughs promised economic growth and increased prosperity, yet each also created serious threats to the environment and to public health. Any decisions on how to address long-term issues, however, were upended by the rough-and-tumble day-to-day world of politics. That brought the election of 2016 of Donald Trump as President of the United States. Not since 1948, when Harry Truman upset Thomas Dewey, had the outcome of a presidential election been so unexpected. In the run-up to the election, both major parties found themselves divided. Hillary Rodham Clinton, the leading Democratic candidate, was challenged from the left by Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont, a self-proclaimed socialist whose campaign centered on the issue of inequality and the influence over the political process by the rich, the Occupy Wall Street's movement, so-called one percenters. Clinton won the nomination, though she was tarnished by the millions of dollars she had earned giving speeches to major banks and corporations. She was also dogged by her decision as Secretary of State to use a private email server, contrary to government security regulations. The Republican Party was even more divided. 18 candidates competed for the nomination, including business conservatives, evangelicals, and libertarians. Among them, most observers at first dismissed the prospect of reality TV celebrity and real estate mogul Donald Trump. Trump had never held a political office, nor possessed any deep experience in economics or world affairs. Given to exaggeration, his, he touted his business skills as proof that he possessed the executive experience necessary to master the presidency. Yet his past included at least four bankruptcies, fraud charges against Trump University, and dozens of lawsuits 
lawsuits for non-payment of debts. For voters struggling to make a living and feeling ignored by traditional politicians, such considerations mattered little. They flocked to his rallies, partly because he was a Washington outsider, partly because he was strongly opposed in illegal immigration, and partly because he delighted in being politically incorrect. In many ways, Trump followed conservative Republican principles. He vowed to repeal Obamacare without specifying how he would replace it. He promised massive tax cuts, privatization of government services, and protection of gun rights. His push for immigration restriction was even louder than that of his rivals, as he vowed to build a really great wall along the southern U.S. border and force Mexico to pay for it. In addition, he floated plans to round up millions of illegal immigrants and deport them and to bar Muslims from entering the country because of their religion. In other ways, however, Trump rejected traditional Republican positions, arguing against free trade policies, promising to reduce American involvement abroad, and displaying a pronounced sympathy for Russia's strongman, Vladimir Putin. It was Trump's style more than his substance that set him apart. With his experience in reality TV, he knew how to attract publicity, good or bad, which shaped the focus of his campaign. His lavish lifestyle suggested power and success. He sent out tweets at all hours that sent the media scurrying to write headlines. Many of the controversies he sparked would have torpedoed a traditional campaign. He was caught bragging about groping women and had tarred Mexican immigrants as rapists. He also invited Russia to hack Clinton campaign emails even after U.S. intelligence had determined that the Russians were already linking confidential emails sent by Democratic officials. Though the race seemed extremely tight at times, Polls during the final months show Clinton with a slender but solid lead. Women voters strongly favor Clinton already due to her strong stance on women's rights and Trump's opposition to legal abortion. Furthermore, at a time when police shootings of unarmed black men had inspired protesters to launch a Black Lives Matter campaign, African Americans joined Latinos in support of Clinton. When the election results were tallied, Clinton won the popular vote by a margin of nearly 3 million. But the Electoral College went for Trump making 2016 one of only five presidential elections in which the popular vote had been won by the losing candidate. Class and race played a major role in the election. 85% of Trump voters were white. Clinton attracted heavy majorities among African Americans, Latinos, and Asian Americans. Those workers who feared globalization favored Trump, as did those in fossil fuel-producing states. Most supporters of action on climate change voted for Clinton. She ran strongest in the multicultural urban areas along the coast. He carried the more socially conservative rural and suburban areas. Republicans also gained control of both the Senate and the House, giving them the opportunity to fill a crucial Supreme Court seat, for which they had refused a hearing for President Obama's nominee. The hotly contested election revealed a United States deeply and vehemently divided along partisan lines. And the new president embodied a political style so unorthodox and combative that, Despite his overwhelmingly conservative cabinet, few observers felt able to predict his future course of action. Fifty years earlier, as marine biologist Rachel Carson researched her book Silent Spring, she came to understand how a single species, humans, had acquired significant power to alter the nature of their world. As she anticipated, nature's resilience has diminished. Species extinctions have soared. The supply of fresh water for human consumption and irrigation has shrunk. Overfishing and pollution have reduced much of the world's once-rich fisheries. Desertification and soil erosion threaten human populations with starvation. In 2012, widespread drought ravaged much of the American Corn Belt, while 2014 and 2015 set records for the two hottest years on record, only to be topped by 2016. Had Carson lived into the 21st century, she would have added climate change to her list of human impacts on nature. 
With oceans warming and ice caps melting, scientists predict that sea levels will rise as much as a meter by the end of the century. Flooding will threaten cities from Miami to Alexandria, Egypt, to Ho Chi Minh City in Vietnam. The future of close to a billion people living in low-lying coastal floodplains depends on decisions about greenhouse gases made in capitals as far-flung as Washington, D.C., Beijing, New Delhi, Mexico City, and Brussels, home to the European Union. The United States must play a central role in addressing these problems. It continues to generate a disproportionate share of the world's greenhouse gases and vast quantities of airborne and water plumes. Yet the incoming president, along with several of his nominees for cabinet positions, sided with the climate change deniers. In the end, the United States cannot solve the problem of global warming without the assistance of the world, and the world cannot succeed without the help of the United States. The threats humankind faces are truly global. So must be the solutions. So there you have it, folks. We brought American history all the way up to the last election in 2016. That's all, folks.